Well, imagine for a moment that you, little old you, gets invited to a prestigious state dinner at the White House. And you've never been to something like this before. Maybe some of you have, but I certainly have not. And so you're a little unsettled by it leading up to the event. You spend a lot of time thinking about what you will wear, wondering what you should wear, and you try to imagine what is it going to be like to rub elbows with all of these powerful and influential people at the White House. And so it's getting closer to the date when you are to make your trip there and go to this dinner. And about a week before the dinner, you receive a letter from the White House outlining the events for the evening, and you suddenly realize why you have been invited. Your longtime friend, who's been very successful, is going to be receiving an important award, and he's going to be giving the keynote speech that evening at the dinner, and you are going to be introducing him to everyone. After your panic attack, you start to pull yourself together and you sit down with a piece of paper in front of you and you try to figure out what in the world am I going to say? How am I going to introduce my friend? And so you begin to think about it. What makes a good introduction? And of course, you Google it because what else are you going to do? You start to think, what do I need to tell people? I want to get them interested. I want to rightly introduce my friend. I want them to be ready to hear my friend speak and to recognize that what he's going to talk about is is important. And I don't want to speak too long, you know. I don't want to take the room because it's just an introduction, but at the same time, I want it to seem like it matters. And so I want to speak just the right amount of time to thread that needle. Not to speak too long, but not to act as if I'm unprepared and like I really don't care about what my friend is going to say. And so as you start to get into that, you realize there really is a certain art form to a good introduction. It makes a difference how you begin something. And that's true whether you're giving a speech, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing an essay, or even if you're writing a letter. And you may not realize it, but the Apostle Paul is a master at giving a good introduction. And I would venture to guess that most of us, when we come to one of Paul's letters, we probably skip over the introduction and we try to get to the meat of what he really says in his letter. And I want to encourage you not to do that this morning. That's why this is entitled, Always Read the Intro. So open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to be this morning, but one of the things you realize when you read Paul's letters is that he's a master of the introduction, and he's a master because he always does the same thing in one sense. He always uses the same structure overall, but he creatively tailors that structure to match the book that he's writing and to match the themes of what he's going to tell us in the letter that he's introducing. He always ingeniously tailors his introductions to fit the circumstances of each particular letter. And so no introduction is exactly the same. All of them are unique and all of them matter very much when it comes to understanding the letter. And so that's what I want to show you today in verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really excited about this study 
This is a magnificent letter. I'm sure it's a letter that has been very, very helpful to you and very influential in your life as it has in mine. And so I'm looking forward to studying it together. But this introduction that we're going to look at this morning, it's not just an intro. It is packed with rich truths, rich gospel truths that we need to come to grips with and we need to understand. And it really sets the table for what we're going to learn in the rest of the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see four gospel truths this morning from these four verses, four gospel truths that set the stage for God to change us through the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is where we're going to be for the next few months, but in this chapter, or in these two verses, four gospel truths that set the stage for God to change us through this book. And the first one of these is God's sovereign plan. And so the first thing Paul does in all of his letters is he introduces himself. But in this particular letter, he, he fits his life. He introduces himself in a way that fits his life within God's sovereign plan. And he wants you to understand right off the bat that his life relates to God's plan for the universe, for all of creation. Look at the first part of verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of of God. Now, obviously, this book is written by Paul, and I would imagine that most of you are somewhat familiar with the Apostle Paul, but here's the basic outline of his life if you're not familiar with him, or even if you are, just to remind you of who he is. Paul was, was a trained theologian. He wasn't just an average guy. He was thoroughly and deeply trained in the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee, and he was a devout adherent of the law of Moses. Paul was passionate about the Mosaic law. And he was so passionate about the Mosaic law that after Jesus died and the Christian church began, Paul actually went on the offensive and started to persecute those who were part of this fledgling church following Jesus Christ. And he went on the offensive to the point where he was going around rounding up Christians, arresting them, and even seeing some of them executed for their faith because he saw their faith as opposed to Judaism and to the, the Old Testament law. But as he was doing this, all of that changed in dramatic fashion when he was on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians, and he met Jesus Christ on that road. And he was radically converted to Christianity. And after he was radically converted, he gave his life to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to starting churches all over Europe and all over Asia Minor. And all of that background, that big picture of his life is important because of the way he identifies himself here in Ephesians chapter 1. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying he's one of the original 12 who spent his, the ministry of Jesus with him and saw everything that he did, but he is saying here that he had seen the risen Christ and he was designating himself as someone who was sent by God. That's what it means to be an apostle. He was sent by God and he was sent with the authority of God in what he proclaimed. So he's saying, I'm an apostle and that means I'm a messenger of Christ Jesus, but as a messenger of Christ Jesus, I have been fully authorized to deliver this message 
the gospel with the authority of the king. And that's why he says here in verse 1 that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, God called Paul into this. Of course, in very dramatic fashion, but God chose him to deliver this message. Paul did not decide to do this on his own terms. He was not in the driver's seat here. It was God's will that Paul proclaim the gospel. And I think you can see this very clearly throughout this book of Ephesians. Flip over to chapter 3. And look how Paul describes his ministry in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, Of this gospel I was made, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What is the grace that Paul was given? It's to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can see there how Paul moves in chapter 3 from his specific ministry out and broadens it out to God's plans for the church and then ultimately for the entire universe. And so what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 and then ultimately back in chapter 1 and verse 1 when he says he was an apostle by the will of God is he's saying that my life fits into the will of God for the universe. He says, my life plays a role in the work that God was doing and in the work that God is currently doing. And so Paul understood here that his life was not his own. He was not in charge of it. He was simply obeying God's will, following God's will, and he was fitting his life into God's purposes and plans for all of creation. You can see this again in chapter 1, verse 11. Here, Paul fits God's will with God's purpose and plan for all of creation. Look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. And so Paul says, look, God is a master architect. He has a plan and a purpose that he is accomplishing, and my life is one tiny piece of that plan. And so let me ask you this morning, if you have Paul's perspective on life, do you understand this morning that your life is not actually yours? That it doesn't belong to you? And that's a very hard pill to swallow in our culture today because our culture tells us over and over again that your life actually belongs to you. You are the sole proprietor of what happens with your life. You'll hear things like this. It's up to you how you live your life. Don't tell me what to do with my body and with my life. But that's not how Paul saw it here at all. 
And it's my prayer that through this study of the book of Ephesians, as we see God's purposes and plans and how they're unfolding in the church, that we will take on Paul's perspective and that we'll humble ourselves and we will say, I only have life and I only have breath and I'm only able to think and move through my day because of the will of God. I am entirely dependent on him and my life belongs to him and my life fits within his purposes and plans. And so what does he have for me today? And what does he have for me this week? That's the first gospel truth here. God's sovereign plan. And we need to set our minds and our thoughts on that, and we'll see that unfolded in the book of Ephesians. Our second gospel truth is the believer's holy position. And so we see this from Paul's next phrase in verse 1, where he tells us who he's writing to. He always has the same structure in his introductions, right? He tells us who is writing, who he's writing to, and then he gives us a specific greeting, which we'll look at in a minute. But here, the end of verse 1, he's telling us who he's writing to. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, or you could translate that, believers, and are believers in Christ Jesus. And so we learn here that he's writing this letter to a local church in Ephesus. And I'm not going to go into great detail about Ephesus as a city, but there's actually quite a bit in Scripture in the New Testament about Ephesus and the church here. You can go this afternoon and read about Ephesus in Acts 19, Acts 20. You can read about Ephesus much later on in Revelation chapter 2. There's actually a letter written to the church at Ephesus uh, after uh, Paul goes off the scene there. But what's interesting about the, the book of Ephesians and this letter in particular is even though it's written to the church at Ephesus, there actually aren't a lot of details about the church given here. You know how in some letters, like 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing and he's addressing all of these problems, and he's even naming people by name? In 1 Corinthians, he says, I heard from Chloe's people, you know, about the divisions among you. Well, he doesn't do any of that here, and he doesn't address specific problems. And so this is a very general, general letter, uh, much more general than, than many of the other ones that he wrote. And so he probably intended this to circulate around to various churches. But what is interesting in, in, this, in verse 1 is how he designates the people who are going to read this letter. Look there with me. To the saints and the believers in Christ Jesus. He defines the recipients in a very specific way. He calls them saints. Now, of course, maybe some of you tend to think of saints as very pious and righteous people who act a certain way all the time. But that's not how this word is used in the New Testament at all. In the New Testament, this word is used to describe every single believer in Christ Jesus. The word actually comes from the root word that means holy. And the idea here is to be set apart, to be separated from the world and separated to Christ and to his purposes. And the basic idea here is that these people who are receiving this letter and then us by extension as those who are reading this letter, we are set apart not because of what we have done, not because of any righteousness of our own, but we are set apart because of what Jesus has done. We're considered holy because of the way Paul phrases this. They are saints, they're holy ones set apart, and they're believers who are in Christ 
Jesus. They're located in him. It's not just that they're trusting in him and that they're believing in him, but they're actually found in him. They have been united to Jesus Christ. They are standing in a position of being in Christ. They're found in him. They're not standing on their own righteousness or their own merit, but they are connected to Jesus. And all the benefits that they have are theirs only because they're in him. I mean, you can see this in verse 3. Just look down two verses, chapter 1 and verse 3. This is going to play a prominent role in the book of Ephesians, this idea of being in Christ. But verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Where are we blessed? It's not because of who we are and what we've done, but we're blessed because we're in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual blessings come to you and I because of our location, and our location is in Christ Jesus. We are set apart and united to him. And because of our holy position, we receive these blessings and these benefits. And you may not realize it right now as I begin to explain the union that we have with Christ, but that is a gospel truth throughout this book that will radically change how we see ourselves, and it will radically change how we behave and how we approach life. That's our second gospel truth, the believer's holy position. Our third one is God's gracious purpose. This is the actual greeting that Paul gives to the Ephesians here, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know those words are so common. You read them anytime you start a book, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's easy to become numb to those words and the importance of those words and the greeting that Paul is giving. But I want to consider those words for just a minute here. And I want to bring some understanding so that when you read these, you can, you can actually rejoice in what Paul is expecting will happen as a result of reading this book. Notice here that the two important words, grace and peace, these are gifts that come to us from a certain location. Look where they come from. They come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have grace and peace because God has given these things to us. Well, what's the nature of these gifts? What, are the, what does he actually mean by grace and peace? Well, grace is unmerited and undeserved favor. And that's a common and simple way of saying it. But it's undeserved favor. It's the goodness of God that comes to us in salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. Grace is not stolen, it is not bought, it is not earned. The only way to receive grace is for it to be lavishly given from the giver of all good things. You cannot repay a gift of grace. It is bestowed on those who are actually in rebellion against the one who gives it. And that grace is going to be described and explained to us in the book of Ephesians through the work of Christ. So grace is God's favor to us, but the goal, the mission of that grace is the second gift. It's peace. 
grace to you and peace. And peace is the goal of the favor of God, of the grace of God. So, so what is the peace that Paul wants them to experience here? Well, we tend to think of a peace as sort of calmness and, and freedom from inner turmoil. It's kind of an emotional word for us. And this word certainly includes emotional well-being, but that's not the sum total. The, the word peace here is actually much bigger than just freedom from inner turmoil. The word peace here is actually the same word that's used in the Old Testament or translated in the Old Testament as shalom. The idea here is it's a state of well-being and harmony. The idea here is it's things are what they should be, as they should be. And this is what we're all hoping for. This is what we're all hoping to enter into one day. This is what we hope for one another. This is what we anticipate in the future. When Jesus reigns over all, there will be peace. There will be shalom. Everything will be as it should be. It will be set right. And so what Paul is saying here is two things. He's saying you as a saint, as one who have been set apart in Christ, you have begun to experience grace and peace now. You have already received God's grace. You have tasted of the well-being that comes from the grace of God, the peace that comes. But what I want from this book, this is what Paul is saying, is I want through the reading of this book for you to experience grace and experience peace more and more. And I want you to grow in your understanding of grace and peace, and I want you to grow in your experience of grace and peace. And I want these things to come to you in greater measure as you read this book. So how exactly does Paul propose to do that in the book of Ephesians? And that's our last gospel truth, the big picture of this book of Ephesians, the particular program that Paul is pursuing to help us grow in grace and peace. And so really, the book of Ephesians, if you've ever studied this book before, it basically comes to us in two parts, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. Two pieces to this book. So broadly speaking, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is telling believers who they are. He's giving them their identity. He's saying, listen, this is who you are. These are the amazing blessings that you have because you are in Christ, because you're covered in his righteousness, because you're believers in him. Here are the blessings that you have. Here is who you are now. You have been changed. You're a new person you're a different person now. And in the midst of these chapters, he prays a couple of different prayers, magnificent prayers, and he prays that they would begin to understand and appropriate their new identity. And so some people have called chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Ephesians the doctrine section of this book. Then in chapters 4 to 6, Paul tells us what the resulting lifestyle is for those who are in Christ. What does this look like functionally and practically in your behavior and in your lifestyle? What is the reality of your position in Christ produced in your life? And you can see this transition very clearly in chapter 4 and verse 1. Flip over there. Everybody's favorite Bible study word, therefore, 
is at the beginning of verse 1. He says, I, therefore, so he's connecting what he's about to say back to everything that has come before, chapters 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's described that calling to you in chapters 1 to 3, and now he's saying, I want you to walk in a way that matches that calling. Now, that word walk is very, very significant in the book of Ephesians. And that word means a lifestyle. It's all the daily patterns of living, the dispositions, the perspectives that you have in life, the way you carry yourself, what you think is valuable. It's your emotional reactions to things. It's the way you live your life every single day. It's your walk. It's the normal pattern of your existence. And all of that flows out of your salvation. Now, what's interesting about chapters 4 to 6 is that there are six sections in chapters 4 to 6. And each of these different sections, five of them, one of them doesn't use the word walk, but each of the other sections actually begins or is grounded on this concept of walk. And so it's a very significant idea in the book of Ephesians. It's your conduct. It's your walk, your lifestyle. And so some people have called the, the second part of Ephesians, chapter four, chapters 4 through 6, the conduct part. So the calling and the conduct, the doctrine and the behavior, two parts of the book of Ephesians. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. And I, I think it's fairly easy to see. If you go home this afternoon and you read through this book, I think you'll, you'll see that the way the book is divided up. You'll see those two sections pretty clearly. But I want to think just for a minute here about the way this book is divided up, and I want to think very carefully about how these two sections go together, all right? It's pretty clear that there are two sections, but we can really quickly and easily deceive ourselves if we don't properly understand how these two sections relate to one another. So what we tend to do is we tend to talk about doctrine as one thing that's over here, and then we tend to talk about behavior as this other thing that's over here, and this may or may not result from the doctrine that we believe. And so we sort of drive a wedge between doctrine and conduct, and we think, well, I can believe certain things, and it may or may not work out in my daily life of behavior and my walk and my lifestyle over here. And so we tend to draw a wedge between our identity of who we are in Christ and the blessings that we receive and then the way we live our lives. But Paul would not have thought of it that way. That's a fairly modern way of understanding the relationship between what we believe and how we live. Paul did not see those two as optional or as mutually exclusive he saw those two things as very much going together and going hand in hand. And so what we need to think about the way these two parts of the book relate together is we need to think of chapters four through six as completing and finishing the identity that we have in chapters one through three. In other words, if you take on this identity of chapters one through three, of being in Christ, of being a believer in Christ, you can't take that on until you are functionally living it out in your daily life. 
This always goes with this. They go hand in hand. That's exactly how Paul describes it. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He actually uses this word walk here. Again, the lifestyle. Because he wants you to see the difference in lifestyle that always goes with a change of identity. Verse 1. And you were dead. This is what you were like before Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This was who you are. This was who you were. This was your identity. You walked in this way of living, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is who we were. This was our identity like the rest of mankind. But Paul says something happens. Your identity has changed. Look down at verse 6. And you have been raised. He raised us up with him and seated us, right? This is a new you. You have changed locations. You've changed identities. You are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of God's grace and love, Because of your salvation, your identity has changed. And what does that functionally look like in your life? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, given this new identity for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The lifestyle matches the calling. The behavior comes from the identity. You are a different person now, and you will walk differently. It makes little sense for me to say, I'm a hunter. Unless I have loaded up my rifle and shot a deer. I can do lots of things that hunters do. I can read about hunting. I can go to the gun range. I can buy and wear orange camouflage. I can fire my gun thousands of times at the range, but I am not a hunter. I don't have that identity until I go out into the woods with my gun loaded and I at least take a shot at a deer. You can't claim the identity unless it's working itself out in your lifestyle and in your walk. And so, My fear here when you divide this up into these two sections is we can tend to think of chapters 4 to 6 as optional. Sort of something we can do if we want to, but we really, the focus is just believing chapters 1 through 3. This is not optional. They go together. Think of it this way. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul is describing a worldview, a way of seeing reality, a way of seeing yourself. It's your identity. He's giving us the context in which the actions of chapters 4 to 6 make sense. So these actions, these ways of being in the world, these qualities, these virtues, they don't make sense unless you have a new identity of chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3 create the reality in us. They give us the motivation for the actions 
of chapters 4 to 6. Let me give you an example of this and show you how these two sections go together, all right? Turn to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So this is right at the beginning of, of the conduct, the walk section of this, right? So Paul goes right into our relationships with one another. Verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what Paul's saying here is the, the conduct that you need to pursue is unity with one another. And this needs to be something that you are passionate about. Now we look at that and we go, that seems like an odd thing to start your conduct section with. Why would you press people to pursue unity with one another? And so we, we can sort of discard that and think, well, there are other conduct matters that are more applicable to me in my daily life. And so we, we turn to chapter 5 where it talks about marriage. We turn to chapter 6 where it talks about the armor of God, and we read those things. But Paul has talked about unity here for a specific reason. Go back to chapter 2. This is from the, the doctrine section. Chapter 2 and verse 11. Because of the identity that he's describing here, this is why you pursue unity with one another. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You see all the language of being on the outside, being separate, being different there? having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Is it any wonder that Paul thinks unity is important? It was so difficult to get Jews and Gentiles to live together in harmony and in unity. But Paul says here, I'm going to start my conduct section with unity. And I'm going to base that on who you are in Christ and the identity that you have in him. And so you can see how this matches up and how the identity section creates the context 
creates the reality in which the conduct makes sense. So rather than than picking and choosing what we think is important, we read chapters 1 to 3, and then we read chapters 4 through 6, and they all go together, and they help us to understand what the new life in Christ actually looks like in our practice and in our ethical conduct. So if you sort of shear off chapters 4 through 6 from chapters 1 to 3, you lose the motivational core of why you live in a certain way. So Paul is trying to retrain our perspective and our vision of the world. He's trying to retrain our emotions and our dispositions so that we walk in a way that is worthy and that matches our calling. So all of that is why I've I've called this series, I've tried to summarize the book of Ephesians, which is a really tough thing to do. I've tried to summarize the entire book with with this title, Recall and React. And those are the two pieces of the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul is telling us to recall who we are in Christ. Consider your identity. Consider the amazing blessings that you have because of the work of Christ. And he builds that identity into us. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he says, now I want you to react to that identity. And I want you to live worthy and appropriate and live in a way that matches your calling and your identity. And so I don't know if you can see the subtitle there on the, on the uh, poster over there, but the subtitle of the series is How the Gospel Forms Identity and Behavior in the Book of Ephesians. And that's what we want. That's what we're pursuing together in our study of this book. We want your identity in Christ to be formed. And then ultimately, we want your behavior your lifestyle, and your walk to be shaped by that identity. That's my prayer for our time together. Let me finish by praying for us as we pursue this worthy goal over the next few months. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of your grace and in need of your work in us. We so easily separate our calling and our conduct But we pray that through the study of Ephesians, you would bring those two things together in a powerful way in our hearts and lives. I pray that we would consistently be people who recall the amazing blessings that we have because of your work, because of the gospel. And then I pray that that act of remembering would turn into a lifestyle change and a working out of our identity in you. Thank you for your grace to us, your unmerited favor in allowing us the opportunity to know these things and study these things. And our our hope that drives our motivation is that one day we will be with you in peace and harmony and shalom under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Encourage us, help our experience of those realities to grow. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.